Prisons are dehumanizing places and it takes work, hard work to stay human. Welcome to Kite Line, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on Kite Line, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we want to share some prison-related news. Prisoners have gone on hunger strike in a pretrial detention center run by the Corrections Corporation of America in Leavenworth, Kansas. The strike was in response to inedible food served in the canteen. Prisoners believed the terrible quality of the food was intended to force them to buy food at high prices from the commissary, also ran by the CCA. Two-thirds of the prisoners participated on April 30th, prompting the prison administrators to promise an improvement to the canteen food. It is unclear whether the strike is ongoing. According to Criminal Legal News, people accused of minor crimes, including theft of services and marijuana possession, who are in pretrial detention in New York City, have to pay bail of $1 in order to be released. It doesn't sound like much, but paying off the dollar bail requires getting through a bureaucratic process. Criminal Legal News reports that the process, quote, involves time-consuming travel, capricious security checks, and complicated paperwork, unquote. In response, a New York University student started the Dollar Bail Brigade, a group that teaches volunteers, many of them NYU students, how to use $1, their free time, and knowledge of how to work the bureaucracy to bail people out of jail. The group encompasses 600 volunteers and has freed 78 people presumed innocent who are surviving in jail for days or months. Anyone who can come to jail with $1 can legally obtain the release of a detainee held on $1 bail. Longtime political prisoner and former member of the Black Panther Party, Herman Bell, was released from prison on April 27th after 45 years in prison. Welcome home, Herman. This week, we share a moving keynote speech recently given at the University of Michigan by Michelle Jones. Jones has been featured on multiple episodes of Kite Line, who shared some of her experiences at the Indiana Women's Prison, particularly on issues of mental and physical health on the inside. Today, she speaks of the extensive social, financial, and other repercussions, what she and others call the collateral consequences of incarceration, that formerly incarcerated people face after their release. Here she is. I'd like to say thank you to the University of Michigan Law School for inviting me. This is going to be an amazing event because I've only been out of prison six months. It has been encouraging to hear and learn about some of the work that people are doing. When I reflect upon the conditions that incarcerated people, especially women, are living with, the forced silences, the maligned characters, the lingering illnesses, the controlled access to information, and being sentenced to slow deaths, I know it as a type of darkness that is alienating. Oftentimes, we have no idea, none, what work is being done on our behalf because of the vice-like control of information going in and coming out. Um, the panels today are going to cover housing, policing in neighborhoods, reentry, surveillance at borders, and um, they all have something in common. They all discuss in one way or another boundary crossings and the prohibitions and penalties inherent in particular boundary crossings for certain people. 
And I'd like to talk a little bit more about that. So when a person leaves prison, we tend to think that their sentence is over and that their debt to society is paid, when in fact it is quite the opposite. As Michelle Alexander stated in The New Jim Crow, today a criminal freed from prison has scarcely more rights and arguably less respect than a freed slave or a black person living free in Mississippi at the height of Jim Crow. Across the nation, the post-incarcerated contend with debilitating consequences of criminal convictions. The American Bar Association in 2015 established a website that categorized 48,000 laws that directly affect the opportunities afforded the newly released. They discovered that 50% of those were job-related. So if securing employment is crucial to reducing recidivism, the awareness that has finally been brought to how incapacitating collateral consequences are to reentry has only recently become clear to those untouched by criminal convictions. So the Collateral Consequences Project grew out of urgings from the ABA and the Uniform Law Commission to identify and codify collateral consequences in an effort that took over five years to complete. It had become apparent that there were many barriers to full citizenship the newly released experience but because they were not centrally located or organized and they were spread across state and federal statutes, state local regulatory codes, local rules and policies, the full impact of those penalties were not known. In Indiana, the American Bar Association has identified nearly 800 laws. So I want to tell you a little bit about my current research project. The goal of the project is to account for the specific categories in which these nearly 800 laws fall into. Because it's one thing to simply count them, but it's quite another to know what areas of life these laws encroach upon, wherein the geographies of collateral consequences can be ascertained for the newly released. So what I will also do is choose one law in which to historicize it as a legal, cultural, and social document which can then situate collateral consequences squarely under a social framework as opposed to a legal one. One reason for this is tied to the fact that legal scholarship has the tendency to ignore the social implications of the law or they ascribe social phenomenon only in legal terms. The second purpose of, this of my project is to suggest what laws need to be amended and removed because the penalties no longer make sense and they're archaic holdovers. Another purpose is to move the dialogue from collateral consequences from the criminology and criminal law community solely, who have a tendency to write and publish only for one another and share it amongst grassroots and community organizers who are not invested in, in keeping the criminal legal system robust and revolving. Lastly, it's important then to suggest new legislation that requires prosecutors and judges to consider collateral consequences as a part of the sentencing process. I think new legislation should require attorneys to inform clients of all the consequences that accompany pleading guilty. And also, there should be new legis legislation to consider deferred adjudication or probation before judgment, particularly for the youth. It is a worthy goal to galvanize Indiana state legislators and the criminal legal system to be at the forefront of creating a state that, as the governor, now Vice President Mike Pence said, is the worst state in which to commit a crime, but the best state for a second chance. 
This cannot happen without a thorough reintegration of the post-incarcerated to full citizenship. Reducing the size of the carceral state will be an impossible task without amending or removing existing legislation to counter the effects of collateral consequences. Because these civil sanctions are enduring, some describe them as a form of civil death, meaning the legal consequences of a conviction relegate people to a perpetual state of artificial personhood. And terms such as internal exile, semi-outlaw status, or being subject to a secret sentence or invisible punishment or long-term legal disability, or even the new civil death, describe a precarious and destitute picture for reentry for the post-incarcerated. So what are collateral consequences? They include but are not limited to the ineligibility for certain employment, occupational licenses, such as some nurses, some lawyers in certain states, plumbers, bartenders, and beauticians. Collateral consequences can include the ineligibility to receive public housing, government contract, be eligible for pension benefits and welfare benefits. Also, in most states, it includes the right to vote, the right to hold an office or public trust, or to be a public service volunteer, or even to sit on a jury. They may result in the loss of parental rights, the right to travel freely, to live in certain parts of town, or hey, even to live with certain family members who happen to be on probation and parole. They may also resort in deportation of non-citizens. Post-incarcerated people often do not qualify for bonded positions, such as insurance agents, bail bondsmen, private detectives, and even some bonded commercial janitorial positions. And of course, they're not, limit they're not uh, permitted to carry a firearm. Collateral consequences are applied across the board and not on a case-by-case -case basis. So imagine an 18-year-old high school student who is convicted of having consensual sex with a 16-year-old. The 18-year-old will be required to register as a sex offender for the rest of their life. A convicted pedophile would undergo the same punishment. Additionally, there are collateral consequences many severe that affect so many people and are so hard to mitigate, which technology via social media and easy background checks have made it difficult to overcome. So it's in this way that collateral consequences can, can be even harsher than the sentence that has been originally imposed by a judge. The bottom line is that the post-incarcerated experience the automatic reduction of full citizenship upon release, which leaves them prey to unlimited discrimination and social stigmatization that actually facilitates recidivism. For the post-incarcerated who are not normal or other, they are judged at every turn in every circumstance and every petition by those inside and outside the corrections framework. Further, because the carceral state ascribes normative value, the post-carcerated are hyper-surveilled, tested, and judged in such a way that their bodies, free from a physical incarceration, are nevertheless captured. Collateral consequences of criminal convictions are at the heart of why a completion of a sentence does not equal freedom or a debt paid but it's actually a hobbled state of unfreedom. So I'd like to suggest that these co legal collateral consequences are actually 
more social in nature. When de describing the effects of the legal collateral consequences, legal scholar Margaret Colgate Love stated, to the extent that they're imposed outside of the sentencing process, collateral consequences take effect without judicial consideration of their appropriateness in the particular case. This criterion also applies to social consequences of criminal conviction, but even more so because of the quotidian social interactions that can be affected by the knowledge of a person's criminal history. Let me give you an example. So my friend Catherine T has a dog and she's on probation. The state revoked her probation because her house arrest bracelet lost track of her for five to 10 minutes around three and four o'clock in the morning every day. Catherine had secured housing, employment, owed no debt, but authorities revoked her probation because she stepped outside to let her dog relieve herself. Catherine and her family had to pay an attorney thousands of dollars to reverse the revocation because she lost everything to reincarceration. Her financial liquidity was the only reason that she stayed out of prison. Nowhere on earth is allowing your dog to relieve itself a law or criminal behavior. Her revocation of, of her parole is a social consequence of her criminal conviction. Let me share another story. So another person that I know named Sarah, she was originally charged with armed robbery. She served four years in prison and released and was released with four years of probation. She served three and a half years of probation successfully until she received a level five felony for neglect of a dependent. One of her daughters was in the backyard with some girls from school entered their yard and started a fight. Sarah allowed her daughter to defend herself and fight back until she was able to approach them walking only to the edge of her property. She went there to break up the fight and told everyone to leave. Two weeks later, she and her daughter were arrested. Authorities decided she violated her probation. The judge sentenced her to do all of her suspended time, four years, and gave her a new charge, level five charge, of neglect of a dependent with a three-year sentence. While released, Sarah had paid all of her fines, fees, and court costs within six months. She had secured full-time employment and part-time employment within one week of her release. She held those two jobs for th around three years. Sarah also attended truck driving school and received her CDL license with a major trucking company. At the time of the incident, Sarah owned her home, two vehicles, and regained full custody of her two daughters. She had even reunited with her son, who she had not seen for 14 years. Today, she has lost it all because she allowed her daughter to defend herself on her own property. That's a practice that's not uncommon in this country. Nothing happened to those girls who came to her home to fight, her children, and nothing happened to the parents of those children who were all without a criminal conviction. For her now, Sarah's release date is in 2020. Her family has disintegrated again, and her children are back in foster care. Her rearrest is a social consequence of her criminal history. So 
Growing out of the stigma of arrest and or conviction of offense and extending beyond legal collateral consequences, social consequences are most insidious in their perpetuation and longevity of a post-incarcerated outcast status. So while not the focus of legal scholars, social consequences permeates all facets of a person's life and where they live into the microcosms of an everyday life. Sociologist Kai Erickson concretized that the difference between those who earn a deviant title in society and those who go their own way in peace is largely determined by the way in which the community filters out and codes the many details of behavior which come to its attention. I argue that those codes for the post-incarcerated are racialized, socialized, because they are legally reinforced and can deny legal protections through government institutions that incapacitate and fragment social interactions with families and communities. All of this exemplifies how a social taint from a conviction becomes social destabilization. So social destabilization is directly relinked to someone's outcast status. It is marked by codes, local policies and regulations that discriminate through their arbitrary application that is often hidden within the fabric of the social interactions and public institutions. So what does this social destabilization look like? For the formerly incarcerated, it's people who are more likely to experience homelessness, community exclusion, family destabilization, stigmatized children, cosmic employment exclusion, social network fragmentation, unending criminal justice debt, mental illness, identity prejudice, and low self-esteem. Social destabilization is racialized as the population most likely to experience it as a result of incarceration are black and brown. Consider the findings of Ferguson, of the Ferguson investigation, wherein policing practices that fostered indebtedness via criminal justice debt for people in that municipality's carceral state were overwhelmingly black and brown. This social stabilization can even resort in shortened life expectancies, which we've all seen. So when we're considering social consequences of criminal convictions, most people have no idea what the formerly incarcerated contend with because we ourselves have no idea what we will face because those consequences are born out of the everyday social interactions and relationships. Honestly, this would suggest that the term collateral is kind of problematic. The consequences of criminal convictions, particularly criminal justice debt, continue from arrest to the release of the post-incarcerated and they exist along a continuum, creating a permanent second-class status. So how do we counter unfreedom? Because there are structural formations of racism, classism, capitalism, and criminality that work against the formerly incarcerated. The reclamation of citizenship, it's, it's pocketed, and sometimes it's completely revoked. I think today we are challenged more than ever to do two things. One, to start where we are with what we have to, and do what we can. And two, do it working in relationship with the people we're trying to help. This is important. The tentacled nature of the carceral state and its many agents 
They work hard to keep the formerly incarcerated othered and socially exiled. And so we must counter that. And one way we do that is in building relationships. So I know a woman who began to volunteer her time at a book service for incarcerated people. She knew no one who was ever incarcerated, and she herself had never been incarcerated. She decided to help one of her friends who worked there. Okay, so women and men started sending in requests from all over the country about their reading interest. This woman, never believing herself to be particularly prejudiced or biased toward incarcerated people, found herself amazed by the varied reading interests of people behind bars. She just never thought they would be interested in the same type of books that she liked. It is unfortunate, but this othering, it's very easy to do. It's easy to forget that incarcerated people are people. So moving into the future with your varied interests and your different levels of advocacy, I would encourage you to remember that. It's important for those academics in the hollowed halls of education and research, particularly those who talk and write and report on prisons and the incarcerated. It's easy to forget that the statistics and the numbers you're working with and writing about represent the lives of real people. One way to stay grounded in the work is to give your time and your energy to working with directly impacted people and or their families who they suffer just as much as the incarcerated. I think it's important to keep flesh and bones on the work that you are doing, and it's important to never lose sight of that. I was recently at an event where a representative from the Mellon Foundation told the story of mass incarceration using only numbers in the form of percentages and money spent and saved. His point was to share his support for higher education in prisons. Yet the most compelling advocate for higher education in prison was a young man who told his story about graduating from college while incarcerated. He then told all the other men in the back who had graduated with him to come forward. And you saw this bond that was created by these guys who had studied together and earned associate's degrees incarcerated. The smiles, the hugs, the mutual respect, you saw it all. So which moment would have moved you? Today, I would not be here without First God and without Dr. Kelsey Kaufman and Dr. McCole Siegel. These two women were accomplished academics teaching in universities, doing their various advocacy projects to make change in the carceral state. One was doing no new jail campaigns and the other one was ending lethal injections from the death penalty. They were also willing to get involved directly with incarcerated people. I am who I am. I bring to the table a certain skill set and capacity, right? But they would be squandered without access to opportunity. And that is what Dr. Kaufman and Dr. Siegel brought to the Indiana Women's Prison. They brought access to opportunity. And it's not easy. Departments of Corrections bring many challenges to volunteers coming into prisons, and they actually add to the ways in which the incarcerated are othered. But against this, these odds, they succeeded. So the only way the formerly incarcerated are really integrated into society in light of social consequences of criminal convictions as opposed to legal ones is through building relationships. We have to dispel the notion that those who've been in prison are just criminals. We have to communicate and demonstrate that crime is not causal. 
When you consider a crime, you need to consider that there is an individual and outside of them is their family relations, and outside of them is the social and economic community relationships, and outside of them are the structures such as racism, classism, sexism, the carceral state, and empire, all working at the same time to create the world that the individual experiences. Now, I'm not saying that everyone should not take responsibility for the things in which they do in this world. No, I'm saying that when you see a person violating social, legal, and cultural norms, there's more going on in that person than just violating social, legal, and cultural norms. Crime doesn't happen in a vacuum. That's why I'm saying it's important to be in relationship and develop human points of contact with the incarcerated and the formerly incarcerated. Prisons are dehumanizing places, and it takes work, hard work to stay human. And it's not only for us, but it's also for you. So you can continue to humanize this very real condition for yourself in your own thinking about people who violate social, cultural, and legal norms. So my charge is to come out of the office, the classroom, the seminar, the workshop, and get involved directly with people who are directly impacted and or their families on the ground. One of the ways that we can approach justice, real justice and counter discrimination is through building relationships. And in order to do that, people have to have access to opportunity. And all of you are opportunity creators. Cease to use the criminal as a standard by which to measure yourself against. Formerly incarcerated people are just people. And if our personhood is not restored by those of you who are writing, working, publishing works in the carceral state about our lives, then what chance do we have with the rest of society to receive our personhood back? There's just simply too much at stake. I also call on the formerly incarcerated. It's because we can't sit back and wait for others to solve our problems with reintegration. We know what is happening to those amongst us who are failing to make it. We cannot sit by and do nothing. In my own life, I have found organizations that help formerly incarcerated women, and I support them with my time and my energy because I recognize my blessed position, and I help others gain access to opportunity. So we need to counter unfreedom, that notion that persons who end up incarcerated and formerly incarcerated are, and living in the carceral state need to stay broken for the system to work. We need to counter that with every fiber of our being. The boundaries to civil rights, self-sufficiency, and sustainability, they must be crossed. When those on the fringes of society do better, meaning having access to opportunity and resources and then demonstrating it, we all do better. This has been KiteLine. Anyone affected by the prison system in any form is welcome to write us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. KiteLine wants your feedback. You can reach us via email at kitelineradio at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. Are you or someone you care about affected by the prison system? You can call us to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512 or you can use this number to record a message to a loved one behind bars. 
You can hear previous episodes of our show or get more information on the prisoners or stories covered on KiteLine at our website, kitelineradio.noblogs.org. You can also find our podcast on iTunes. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. We are not responsible for all views expressed on the program. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the views expressed on the show. This has been KiteLine. Join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our communities. Thank you for listening.